Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to the AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. To model a 600 by 600 image, you have to handle 1 million tokens, and current uh, architecture just cannot support it. That naturally introduces a different problem, like we need a new architecture to solve this. And that's why we have this very efficient way to, of modeling uh, involved multi-scale transformer. We are very excited about being able to directly in the future model the raw format of any file, any input, any modality. I think that's like a really uh, exciting direction for us. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, my guest is Lily Yu, research scientist at Meta and author of the recent hit paper, Megabyte, predicting million byte sequences with multi-scale transformers. I first encountered this paper via a viral tweet from OpenAI's Andre Karpathy, who called it a promising way to potentially move language models beyond tokenization. If you're not familiar with the term tokenization in the context of language models is the process of breaking natural language down into a fixed vocabulary of frequently occurring strings. In the case of GPT-3 and GPT-4, this vocabulary consists of more than 50,000 words, word parts, numbers, and symbols. All language model inputs are chopped up into these tokens prior to embedding into numbers, and all next token predictions are selected from this set of tokens as well. In other modalities, there are other conceptions of tokens. Image tokens, for example, might represent small squares within the larger image. Tokenization is used because existing AI architectures struggle to work with really long sequences of data. With the best performing methods available today, the compute costs ultimately get out of control, and there is a GPU shortage, as you may know. So since sequence length is limited, some higher level, more semantic compression of the data is necessary, and tokenization is the first pass, still sort of hacky way, that that's currently done. However, it does cause a bunch of problems, which Karpathy explains a bit in the tweet and also links to deeper reading on, if you're interested. Suffice it to say for our purposes that it gets super weird. So weird, in fact, that there is a Redditor whose username has been immortalized as part of GPT-3 vocabulary, and there are other super rare tokens that famous models seemingly can't be made to say at all. Karpathy summed it up by saying, the list goes on. TLDR, everyone should hope that tokenization could be thrown away. Maybe even more importantly, we may find general purpose strategies for multi-scale training in the process. And that's what we're talking to Lily about today, because in her strategy to eliminate the need for tokenization, she just might have made a more fundamental contribution. I'm not an algorithm expert. As you'll hear, I ask some pretty simple questions. But recently, I have come to believe that Given the presence of web-scale data and web-scale compute, it was really only a matter of time until somebody figured out a workable algorithm. 
Transformers are just one architecture, as the human brain is just one architecture, and neither is the end of history. The basic idea of this research is that the megabyte architecture operates at multiple scales. Unlike in a single transformer where all the layers tend to be the same size, in the megabyte architecture, information is first encoded in patches, then there is a global model that shuffles all the information around, and then the final byte-level predictions are again made by separate local patch models, which can be run in parallel. And it seems like this architecture just might have it all. For starters, yes, the byte-level prediction eliminates tokenization. Now the model looks at everything as raw bytes, and it's always predicting just the next byte. There are only 256 possible bytes, just 2 to the 8. So each one is ultimately just a series of 8 zeros and 1s. It's kind of crazy low level, to me at least, if you think about it that way. But because everything is bytes, music, video, text, all of these are bytes on some level, if this does work super well, it will naturally extend across modalities. It also has more attractive scaling laws, subquadratic, as they say, and again, it's more parallelizable too. These advantages allow it to work up to 1 million byte length sequences, hence the title megabyte. But what is a megabyte? In text, it's a million characters, which does exceed for practical purposes Claude 100K's 100K token length. In music, it's about one minute of music sound. This architecture, because it's constituted of transformers, will continue to benefit from improvements to transformers more generally. So obviously the key question is how it performs. In their experiments, Lil Yu and her teammates show that it does appear to be competitive with the standard transformer methods. So the next step at this point is for Meta AI to take this architecture up to Llama scale and see what happens there. It sounds, as you'll hear from Lily's comments, that they are very optimistic. But this is such an experimental science that we can't and won't know for sure until they try. Assuming it is successful, we could see mass adoption remarkably quickly. They have open sourced their methods after all. But we still might find performance quirks and behavioral surprises for quite a while to come. And even if they're not successful, I think we should continue to watch this sort of research space closely, as the paradigm could definitely still evolve in unpredictable ways. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation about some cutting-edge architectural research with Lily Yu from Meta AI. Lily Yu, welcome to The Cognitive Revolution. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. You've recently published this paper along with colleagues at Meta called Megabyte, predicting million byte sequences with multi-scale transformers. And uh, as soon as I came across it on Twitter and saw the headline figure from the paper, I said, this is one that I definitely want to uh, dig a little bit deeper into. So this has been a theme for a, a couple of recent episodes. Definitely want to encourage listeners to take a second and go look at the figure just to, you know, obviously pictures worth a thousand words, kind of get that visual in your head of the shape of the architecture that we're going to be digging into. Um, it should only take like a minute, you know, to kind of study it for a second before, you know, going on to listen to the rest of the conversation. But I think that will be extremely helpful. We also have all the math and formulas in figure two. 
<laughs> for some people who are really curious and want to know exactly the detail. Well, that's what I hope to understand better at the uh, end of this hour than I do coming in. So maybe just for starters, let me kind of bounce off what I took away from the paper. And you can tell me, you know, if I'm missing anything or how you would frame it differently. The big thing that I saw, and, you know, I, I try to avoid analogies wherever possible to uh, describe AI systems, because I think they, they so often can confuse and mislead. But when I look at this architecture, it does kind of look like a fork where you've got kind of the main you know, body, the global model, and then you've got these kind of smaller local models that branch off from that. And so it has this kind of general fork shape. And what I was thinking is, okay, this seems like a sort of different take on a, a somewhat common theme lately, which is like models talking to models in high dimensional space, except you've created a hierarchy that can be trained end to end. So now we have kind of multiple transformers in a single architecture, all operating under one loss function and one optimization function. How'd I do for starters? Uh, it's a good start, but first the idea of separating the agents surprised me. <laughs> Second, the interaction uh, is a little bit different when we think about uh, different agents communicating with each other compared with end-to-end training of autoregressive language model. So when we say different agents, there's like different type of action coming from different agents. Uh, here uh, in megabytes, we try to do prediction, just everything is bytes and everything has causal relationship, like different, the uh, local model, one follow each other, predicting the bytes uh, the sequential bytes, even though they are prediction parallel, but it's actually a sequential, like uniform bytes. Right. But architecture wise, yes, we have this like kind of like, uh, different patch. We use a simple concat, uh, operation, which is the, which is the patch embedder, uh, patch embed in, in the paper, the different patch, uh, group different uh, bytes together and they go to the global model and then they separate out, as you said, like fork out. I think that's the correct understanding. So it seems like there's several big advantages to this. And I'd love to hear you kind of describe each one and maybe talk about which ones motivated you and which ones you think are ultimately most powerful. But the, the big advantages seem to be one that there is the ability just to scale to far larger sequences than a typical transformer can. So you're literally predicting up to a million bytes. In this case, the byte is sort of the unit of prediction. So it takes the place of the token that people are, you know, familiar with if they're, you know, API users of OpenAI or, or Anthropic or, or what have you. But going up, you know, anybody would who's used these sorts of products would recognize that, hey, we have been kind of living at like the 8,000 uh, token level for a while. Now that's starting to expand. We've got Claude 100K, but now you're you know taking this up to a million bytes. So that's a big deal. There's also the performance or let's say the compute you know efficiency uh, advantage because certain things can be run in parallel. They're, they're both smaller. So I guess that's compute efficiency and kind of ready parallelization. And then third, Related to the fact that you're, that you're 
predicting bytes, you don't have to worry about tokens. So you can kind of handle everything as like largely sort of raw data. T tell us more about all of those and maybe start with the one that you think is most important. Yeah, so I think for this work, uh, it, it actually comes to hand-to-hand hand hand everything, basically. So what we really want to solve is, is get rid of the headache of the tokenizer. So we want a tokenizer-free uh, language model. However, it's uh, why people, there, there must be a reason why people do the tokenizer. Uh, one thing is to effectively compress information so it's easier to do the compute, it's cheaper. So that means, see, but however, it, uh, the tokenizer indeed introduced lots of problems. So the common problem people may experience right now is, you know, on the text, uh, on the text space, you have this BPE tokenizer. Uh, the biggest headache is the space, and sometimes you also see people do certain prompt engineer by prefix some random combination of the letter, and then it's gonna tokenize to certain things, and the model gonna continue generation certain nonsense. That's all drawback of tokenizer. Uh, of course, another uh, difficulty of tokenizer is say, oh, one day you want to use chat GPT is very powerful. Let's say you want to use a weaker large language model and you want to use in um, bio, you want to use, use in chemistry, you want to use in some foreign code. And then the tokenizer is out of distribution for your uh, new domain. And then you're gonna get problem with like fine tuning or something. So that's uh, what people experience with the text. Uh, however, it's also a big, big problem for multimodal. See, you know, right now we are focused on text and then uh, everybody have to use in ChatGPT, but we also know like uh, GPT-4 is already multimodal. Uh, and in the future, multimodal gonna be a big thing. However, it's a big, big issue when you want to model image or you want to model audio. For example, in image, uh, image there are two uh, main architecture to solve it. One is a diffusion model, which take pixel, but diffusion model is very expensive and the like it has its own issues. How, if you want to do autoregressive on image, then you, uh, you experience even longer sequence. Like, for example, in our paper, we do 600 pixel by pixel image. That's already 1 million bytes. And then people use uh, VQGAN as image tokenizer. So text tokenizer gave you headache, but the image tokenizer can actually give you nightmare. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. Because it's lossy. It's actually truly lossy. So to text tokenizer, the tokenization may not be reasonable, but if you do, say, uh, input string, tokenize, detokenize, you get the original string. But for image, if you do image input, you do tokenization and detokenization, you get a slightly different image. Some details is off, some color is off, some, yeah, like finger get mixed up. And then if it's original, there's words, you cannot say it clearly. Same thing, same thing for audio. It's also a lossy process. 
So that's why we really want to get rid of tokenizer, no matter it's to enable, you know, in the future, the true multimodal, uh, multimodal uh, type of modeling, or to be able to mix them, easily mix image text and audio, or to be easily adapt to new domain. We really want to get a tokenizer. So that's one of the biggest problems we want to solve. So that comes to another question. Uh, nothing is for free, right? As I, I just said, the reason people want tokenizer because you cannot just handle such a long raw input sequence for image, like to model a six six by six, uh, 600 by 600 image, you have to handle 1 million tokens and current uh, architecture just cannot support it. So that naturally introduced a different problem. Like we need a new architecture to solve this. And that's why we have this very, very efficient, very, very efficient way to, of modeling uh, involve multi-scale transformer. So yeah, that's naturally, I think it's 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 a uh, one stone um, kill two birds situation here. We remove the tokenizer and we have this very efficient architecture to support it. And we demonstrate that across different uh, modality, across text, image, and uh, audio, we can both achieve like state-of-art performance. Okay, so that's that, that comes to another question, right? Can you combine the tokenizer and this model architecture to enable very, very long sequence modeling? So I think that's that's definitely part of our future future work and where we are thinking very, very, very carefully. So for the current paper per se, that's not uh, what we are trying to solve. So that's all very helpful. So the big motivation is, and I, I didn't even mention the you know natural extension to multimodality in my too long, my already too long uh, first question. So thank you for bringing that up as well, because that's definitely a key part of the result is that you have the same architecture working across different modalities. Let me just try to understand this this core figure. So again, listeners, well, look at the figure. This is figure one from the paper. It's, you know, we'll put a link in the show notes, very easy to find um, and, and pretty easy to sort of get a general just for, but there are a couple of things I want to dig into a little bit more. First, the input side, everything is bytes, right? The, from this is all bytes in and bytes out and the architecture itself doesn't care what these bytes represent, right? So I got that. What is a little less clear to me is what are the patches doing on the input side? Because I, if, I, if I understood correctly, and maybe I didn't, I understood that the embedding was lossless. So then I was kind of like, well, if it's lossless and it's all just going into this global model that kind of sits at the middle of the whole thing, it, what is the meaning of those patches or what is the function of those patches as opposed to just saying, you know, here's all the bytes that are inputs, just feed them directly into the global model. Like what's happening um, in those patch embed modules? So there are a couple of things here. Uh, see like in figure one, right? We have uh, this whole string as input and they are actually input as bytes. So we have 16, 16 bytes. So the sequence length is 16 and we separate them as patch. 
So it's four by four. That means each of the either the local model or the patch embedder. So we have four duplicate of them, and each has input of four. And the global model, the global model, they only see the patched input. So each patch take four bytes as input, and they're gonna give you back one vector. So the four bytes already merged into one vector. And then now the global gonna only handle four, uh, gonna only handle four vectors instead of 16. So that's why uh, the global model was able to say like much uh, shorter sequence or equivalently, if it's shorter sequence and you have the same compute, you can make the model bigger. So that's a big difference. If you just put everything into the global model raw, it's say 16, uh, six, six, 16 sequence lens, 16 as a sequence lens. And now with the help of the patch embedder as a local model, the global model only needs to see sequence of four. So it's much shorter and much efficient. So one thing, another thing which, uh, which I think is also relevant to your later uh, question is this uh, padding. The padding is actually really, really critical. So in current language model is doing next token prediction. So how they do next token prediction is actually by padding. So if you look at the uh, upper part, the local model, you have this, uh, for example, megabyte, uh, the mega, the ME, the mega, the four, uh, four character input. So for the local model, you actually need to pad the beginning, this, uh, padding token. So the model, how it works is they see the padding token and they predict the M letter. And then they say the M letter, they predict the E letter. So that's, uh, make sure they don't see future. They don't see future. Everything they predict, they only see things before it. That's the essence of the next token or in, or here in our paper is next byte prediction. So that's why we, they need to add this token. So, so what about the, but however, because our local model can see all the preference patches. So when we, so the input to the global model, you are not only going to patch a single letter. You have, you have to, had a whole patch. Are all the patch embed modules the same? Are they all identical? Like even down to, you know, the lookups, the, the sort of conversion of a byte to, I guess it's even, it's a little different than what I normally think of as embedding, right? Because I normally think of a token having a sort of long form vector representation. But here, because everything is bytes, there's only 256 bytes. Like, they're just represented explicitly, literally, right? Ah, I see. So actually, we still have embedding. Again, as you said, but the embedding matrix is much, much smaller. So for example, in a normal large language model, the vocab size is either 32K, 65K, 50K. Depends, it depends on the, uh, you know, how the research choose pick for their task. So for that, you have a large vocab, 
map to an embedding space. It's actually the same. It's just the vocab is so much smaller. The vocab is only 256. And for the 256, you map to an embedding. Again, as you said, because the vocab is much smaller, so the embedding size we need should be also be smaller, right? Like otherwise, it's it's such a waste if you have like 4,000 uh, embedding dimension to capture a vocab of 256. That doesn't make sense. So in our paper, actually, the embedding size we pick as uh, 32, which is very very small. So you are mapped to one hot vector uh, of 256. That's what people to represent uh, naive vocab is one hot vector. And then you change that to a dense vector of 32, like one dimensional dense floating point uh, vector with dimension of 32. It's an eighth uh, as big. Yes, yes. So we found that it's not a big, uh, it doesn't really impact that much. We can actually go even smaller, but um, it's actually a very, very small module. It didn't optimize that much. So there's still this embedding, and you're learning your own embeddings as part of this process? There's not like an off-the-shelf embedding for this, I suppose, right? Yes, everything is not end-to-end. So basically, you learn that matrix, that small matrix. The patches are the same. So it doesn't matter if I'm in patch one or patch two, patch three. If I have the same bytes, that gets converted to the same embeddings and the same data flows into the global model, regardless of which patch that is coming from. Yes, 100%. Uh, so there, there's slight difference. The difference is the position embedding. Yeah, yeah. So position embedding, uh, there's like separate position embedding for the local model and for the global model. You're going to know which patch you are coming from and uh, which letter inside the patch. So the model actually know your uh, position fully. But the embedding is the same, actually. It's, it's, it's exactly the same for Transformer because, you know, Transformer has no sequence. Everything's uh, parallel. The matrix has no idea of the sequence. And every position information is not from this position embedding. Helpful and clarifying. So I, I'm up to, I think I understand everything now, up to the global model. And the global model, if I understand correctly, is basically a transformer, right? It, it is. So, and it has all the normal features that we would expect from a transformer, which is to say your residual stream, your attention blocks, your MLP blocks, your nonlinear, you know, kind of gate. And the difference in this case is that its output gets directed to all the instead of being the final output it's its output is the input to each of the local models that are going to do the final set of predictions that's perfect yeah that's very very correct going back to that padding concept so i mean here's a really naive question when i'm thinking about predicting text, and maybe the answer is going to be like, don't think about text, maybe think about a different modality for this. But I'm looking at the at the diagram, and it's like, you've got kind of megabyte tran are the sort of, you know, 12 letters that have been 
predicted. And then, it, you know, as it works its way through, then the output is that the next, you know, the, the fourth patch is predicted. And now at the end, you've got, you know, four more characters, megabyte trans, and the last four are S-F-O-R. So you predicted those, that kind of chunk of four letters. My first question is, why do we even need all of the different local models? What are they doing? Like, what, what is even happening there? Because my naive, what I'm, there's got to be something wrong with my understanding. But what I'm kind of thinking is, okay, you take all this stuff, you do the embeddings, you feed it into the global model. The global model does its thing. But it's really only the last patch that's predicting new content. Aha. Uh -huh. I see what you mean. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So uh, this actually come to this actually come to how language so so okay, this is the language model, how language model works. Even with tokens, right? Even with tokens, uh, you predict every word. So with a sentence, for example, today is sunny, you still predict today with empty uh, input and you predict uh, is with today and, and so on. So you don't only, you are not only predicting the sounding. So it's the same here. So basically the model needs to learn that, uh, see the first ever, the left column, for example, the model needs to learn that with a padded patch, the, the very red, the most red color, the pad with, with a padded patch with basically empty, uh, patch, it needs to predict this mega. That's equivalent with you say empty and you predict today. And they say the patch plus mega, it needs to predict the byte, the BYTE. Uh, the one efficient thing about the autoregressive prediction is they predict every word. That's why this learning is efficient. So, and that's done by this, uh, that's done by two things. One is this uh, padding. The other one is triang triangular mask masking, the causal mask. Yeah, so, so, so basically we also want to make a prediction on every local patch. It's the same, so we want to predict, so that's, the loss has rich information about the modeling. We want to, so there are four local models and every local model's prediction gonna compare with the ground truth and get a loss. So we're gonna have, uh, if we simplify it, we're gonna have 16 loss. So every predict, cause there are 16 um, character. So each character is, uh, has ground truth to compare into. And we're gonna get a loss, and and in the end, the loss is average. So maybe just starting with a you know vanilla transformer that I'm most familiar with, and everybody in the audience will be more familiar with. I don't know how well understood this is. I'm you know it's it's easy to kind of forget and just kind of background this fact. But when you do a forward pass through a transformer, you are not just predicting the final token, but you are actually generating a full set of predictions, which, you know, in the case of like a GPT-3 type of model would be full distribution across the entire vocabulary of 50,000 tokens, 
at every token position. Now you're not using that at the end because you already know ground truth there for what the you know what all the current you know what all what all the input tokens were, but you you can kind of examine those if you want you know assuming you have access to the outputs, which uh, increasingly you know you have to run your own thing to have that, but you can see along the way that oh this token was a surprising token, this token you know was an expected token, etc. So there's lots of kind of interesting things you can glean from that. But then also in the vanilla transformer, there is this kind of look back mechanism that happens through every layer, right? So I guess the kind of, when I think about a, a traditional, you know, traditional transformer, I'm thinking there's two reasons to do that. One is what you said, which is because I'm making a prediction at every single token, I have that many more predictions that I can feedback and use to power my optimization. But then also with the regular transformer, up until the last attention layer, you have some possibility, right, for information from earlier tokens to influence the last token that you're actually here to predict, right? Okay, now flipping over to the megabyte architecture, it seems like maybe if I'm understanding correctly, one of those holds, but maybe not both. So you would still have, you make the prediction for every single byte, which in this case is you're making a 250, because there's 256 possible byte values. You're making a prediction for every possible byte value at every possible byte position. Because you're doing all those predictions, you have all those loss measures that you can then use to power your backpropagation optimization. That's presumably particularly important when uh, particularly useful for like informing the global model. But in this case, once the, when you're actually doing inference, once you're past the global model, now there's no more communication, right? Between the local models. So I get kind of one of those two benefits, but not. I see. So, 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 so I, I have to comment one on this. Uh, this one comment is like in the autoregressive model, I feel like it's underappreciated that we make prediction every token. So basically, if you have 16 token, you make 16 prediction. And that's different with the um, representation, representation model, which is BERT or Robarta. So that's like encoder model. So GPT-2, GPT-3, uh, extra short, they are decoder-only model. And we are decoder-only model too. So for the encoder-only model, the loss is only on the masked tokens. That's only 15% of uh, the tokens. So you do one forward pass, you only get 15% uh, loss on 50% of the 15% of the tokens. While for decoder only model, you do one forward pass, you get loss on every tokens. I think that's why, uh, personally, I feel that's one of the big reason why decoder only model gradually gets so and so popular and being able to enable, you know, very, very big model, very, very, very powerful model, very, very uniform model. That's one of the big reason, like, because it can learn so efficient and 
you get rich uh, loss information and you are able to leverage the data really well. Uh, so that's a side comment, basically. We, and, and of course, that's what we want to leverage to make a prediction on every token. And then that's supported by transformer. So basically think about this. This could be uh, sequential. So what that means, uh, during inference, you have this uh, padded uh, patch as input, and that goes to the local model. And the local model gonna see this letter one by one. They gonna see the pad, they predict one letter M, and then they take the M as input M and pad it together as input, they predict E, and then they, they take the pad and the two letter as input and predict G. So theoretically, it's supposed to done sequentially, they predict one by one, but thanks to the parallelism of the transformer, we are able to, during training, during training, you can do the feed forward and get every loss, and then you can get the loss all together. So that's one advantage of the transformer architecture. That's also one why like everyone is using transformer. Of course, I'm not so in other architecture, like people are also making efforts trying to make other uh, architecture scalable and parallelism, but transformer is uh, native for this and it, it works really, really well. Uh, and then, as you said, for inference, yes. So basically, inference, we decode patch by patch. We decode, see if we want to decode the trends, T-R-A-N. We need to decode the first patch out and take the first patch as input to fit into the global and predict the second patch and take the first, uh, first two patch output as input to predict the third patch. And then within each patch, of course, byte by byte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And within each patch, byte by byte. So that's a small difference between, you know, how model works in training and how model works in inference. I'm with you on the training portion. If we are using the megabyte architecture for inference, though, is there any reason that I have to run the earlier patches or if I'm if I'm just concerned with inference, could I just run the final local patch? So yes, if you know the previous patch, you can run the last patch, right? So let's come to see how you want your language model to work. So this is a question, for example, if you ask your chat GPT, I don't know, a coding question. And then mod the model gonna generate like the coding, like the, the, the whole coding answer. So that means your question, they don't need to run one by one. They can run that parallel. But everything the model generates has to run token by token. So it's the same here. If you know the previous patch, you can input that and run that parallel. But everything the model don't know and the model need to continue generate, it needs to run byte by byte. So, but I, I'm stuck on this point only because it will either help me confirm or, you know, uh, poke a hole in my understanding. But if I am doing new inference with the megabyte architecture, I have to run the whole thing in a loop because I'm predicting one patch at a time and I can only 
predict one patch at a time because any future patches depend on that that patch first. That's basically the meaning of auto regressive. But when I look at figure one and I'm thinking, okay, I, there's four patches here. Do I in practice, could I just like not run the first three patches at inference time and just embed, you know, do all my local embeddings, do my global model, and then just run the final patch? Do you know about the first three patch? Is that given? Yeah. So let's say I let's say I'm doing you know exactly this example. So I've, my first three patches are megabyte tran, and I input those. They get embedded. They get passed into the global model. The global model does its transformer thing. It then produces outputs that would feed into all four patches. But I'm trying to confirm what I think I understand, which is that. At that point, there's no further information exchange between the patches. And so if I'm only concerned with the new patch output, then I could just say, okay, I'm going to ignore those first three patches of output from the global model and only process the fourth patch from the global model because that's all I really need the output for. Yes, that's 100%. Say like after this global model, right, you get full uh, label as edge global out uh, in our uh, the hidden hidden representation of global out. At this point, you can you can only take the last one. You can get only take the last one, and then you're gonna you, you're gonna use that together with the local model to decode the last uh, bytes you need. Yes. Okay. Cool. But in training, you do have to do, or you don't. I guess maybe you don't have to, but you do run all of them because they all contribute to the presence of all these lost values that then you can use to optimize the model end to end in the first place. Yes, yes. We want a loss from every every byte. Yes. So that is really interesting. I've, this is not like a, a strong theory of mine, but increasingly I see kind of a lot of things and I'm like, a lot of these things seem like isomorphic to other things or kind of nearly so. So I was thinking, is there a sort of modified like vanilla transformer that I could kind of imagine that would be akin to this. And what I came up with was like, you know, typically the transformer has like the same width right throughout. It has kind of the same dimension at each block, but here you're kind of shrinking the dimensionality of the input in order to have a, a more efficient global model and then kind of chunking in order for kind of more efficient parallelization. Do you think you could kind of do something similar where if you divide, devise a, a transformer, but you said like the early layers, you know, are going to be wide, but then they'll go through like a bottleneck. And then at the end, they'll get like particularly narrow. Does that seem like it would potentially have some similar value? Yeah, yes, yes. I think uh, so. There are a couple of things. I think one thing we really want to do is uh, try to uh, take advantage of the powerful transformer. So in some sense, the global model is intact transformer and the local model is also intact transformer. So that's something actually by design because as you said, there are many, many optimization of the transformer architecture and uh, some of them is very memory efficient. Um, yeah, some of them is uh, flop friendly. Um, but in the end, what we really care is 
how well it scales. Uh, so I think uh, there are lots of great work, but they need to test at large scale. So, you know, nowadays, I think most people do large language models still using the dense transformer because it's most well tested and it's uh, performed well when you have a lot of model, a uh, lot of data and a lot of compute. I think that's why we don't want to touch that. And in many sense, see one day people found uh, efficient attention mechanism, we can just swap in, right? Because we can swap in the attention in local model and swap in the attention in the global model with this new attention mechanism. So that's by design. Second is this auto-regressive prediction and this masking is actually very, very important. So basically, if you want to do also auto regressive transformer, you have to guarantee that. Otherwise, you have information leaking, and you you have information leaking, and then your model will learn nothing. So you know, like the large language model learning, you need to make the task also challenging. If you either know the ground truth, I just copy from my input. When you touch the transformer uh, locally it's really hard to guarantee that. So basically, because we have this triangular masking on the input, if you arbitrarily uh, rescale your inner dimension, or as you said, make the model wider or narrower, you have to add very, very complex masking strategy inside. And it's really, really hard. So that's the thing. And third thing is there's something quite uh, pretty about how we design this global model. So basically the global model has shorter sequence. So a shorter sequence has not, actually has a couple of advantage. One is on attention. That's what, we, when people can't think about the sequence, that's what people care the most because uh, apparently this quadratic memory scaling give people issue when you have long sequence. But if you make the sequence shorter, it also reduces the feed forward. We also discussed in the paper. So in nowadays, feed forward is most compute uh, expensive part of your model. See, if a GPT-3, it only t uh, the attention only takes 2-3% of your whole compute, feed forward is a big chunk. And the way we do it for the global model, it's one over P, like, the uh, normal flop of a transformer, of a, a naive transformer. So see, we take the passes of eight. Now our global transformer only need to take one, one, one eighth of the compute and we can make it bigger and more powerful. I think that's why we stick to this current design for many reasons. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then I suppose too, it also sort of suggests the potential for modularity, right? I mean, we see all these projects where certain, you know, a language model is frozen and combined to something else. And I can, as you're, the more you're talking about this, I can start to easily imagine freezing different parts of the model, you know, having different kinds of local models that could perhaps be swappable depending on, you know, we may only need to fine tune the, the local models for certain tasks or, you know, who knows what, right? But it seems like that would be, this architecture would lend itself quite nicely to modularity downstream. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I totally agree. I think there's like, uh, there's actually in the VOM, like video language model, there's such architecture. 
to to adapt to like say upper change um so uh, adding like uh image understanding and maybe even image generation uh, functionality on top of uh pre-trained text uh, language model there's it's 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 quite uh in that sense it's quite similar yes yeah almost like a different head so to speak if you had a similar maybe even the same concept but yeah you have a if you can train a single global model that can handle different kinds of inputs and represent them in a meaningful way, then you could have different local models that create different sorts of outputs based on that single understanding. Yes, 100%. Yeah, this is really interesting. So, and it's no, uh, the more I learn about it, it, it makes sense why uh, some of the leading uh, thinkers in the space have been very excited about this paper. You've kind of covered a little bit already the how you choose the patch size. It seems like that's basically a trade-off. The way I was thinking about it, and you can you know complicate this, but I was kind of thinking in the limit, if you just had one giant patch, then you basically just have one giant model or two kind of stacked you know global models, which would have all the normal downsides of that. If you, on the other hand, you know took the other limit, then you would have you know kind of an insane number of patches and i guess i don't know exactly what goes wrong there but it seems kind of silly so you're kind of looking for this happy medium in the in the middle that that trades off these two extremes and and that's an experimental process it seems yes yes 100% as you said uh either you choose uh patch size as the whole thing or use choose patch size as one that's like both two extreme we just become a normal transformer basically okay so the patch size of one yeah it doesn't have to do anything then it's just the global model choose does the output okay that makes sense either ends we become the naive transformer and our model actually also oh, i mean in our experiments we also ablate that and uh Actually, we found out with combination of both two is really, really helpful. Then it comes to the question, how to choose a patch size. So theoretically, we should, like, if you want to optimize the um, memory of your attention, we have a formula how to help you how to choose a patch size. But we, we actually pick the patch size quite heuristically right now. Say for text, we try to stay, don't, stay uh, too much away from BPE token. So right now, BPE token normally have uh, one BPE token corresponds to, to around about four bytes. So we, we cannot pick a byte, uh, we pick patch size of eight to be not far away from that, but also compute efficient. And for image, we kind of like pick patch of eight by eight or 16 by 16. That's what people do with uh, the image tokenizer. So basically, how we pick the patch size is kind of like inspired by how people do the tokenization, but we don't want the tokenization uh, at all. Uh, so in our paper. So that being said, it's actually a good. In our paper, we also studied uh, how to pick certain patch size, but I will see that's not comprehensive at all. Like we do need more study wide range of that, and especially. Uh, that's going back to the long sequence story. If we make the local embedding, local model as strong 
as a normal transformer, say 2,000 tokens, right? The local model, 2,000 tokens. And, and we only have, say, eight or 16 of those patch, then that means we're training a 16K or 32K like normal transformer. So I think, I think there's a whole wide spectral how we can pick the patch size. But interestingly, overall, we find uh, a wide range of patches actually worked quite well for our task. So that's, uh, that's something definitely need more analysis, you know, which region and how we uh, do the model size pick too. We do find it quite stable to the path size uh, at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. These, um, I guess the, the intuition for that would maybe just be that there's some curve and, you know, it's kind of relatively flat near the local minimum. And so you have kind of a, a range there that you won't see too much difference with. Maybe you could just kind of describe the different multimodal experiments because we've talked largely about text, but there's also stuff pertaining to image and even music. Maybe just give like a little rundown of kind of even just what those data sets are, because I don't think people have a great sense, you know, when they see a name of a data set, you know, what even is that task? Um, so give us just a sense of kind of the generality that you've been able to demonstrate. Yes, yes, yes. So basically, uh, this auto-regressive language model has been very, very popular on text, but people also have been doing that for both image and uh, audio for a very, very long time. However, for image, uh, due to the challenge I just described, the image has very, very long sequence. Uh, it's not as popular, but even earlier, right after transformer, there's image transformer. However, they have to compress inputs, so it's also a lossy process. The same as audio, like back in, I believe it's 2016, there's like WaveNet that you predict the audio wave um, one by one. So the task, basically, it's the same. It's predict something, the something byte, predict byte one by one. And for image, it's normally come with image size, say, you know, 4K image. So the 4K image, when you read the raw image, it's 4K times 4K. So that's like the square times three. Three is a normally the RBG channel. That's many of bytes. That's your whole image. And for us, it's like we just take it and this is like two, this is a 3D matrix. One image is 3D matrix and we just flatten it out. And that's your input sequence. That's then become a 1D sequence. And now you can just treat that as text and you predict one by one and one by one. Uh, there's a little bit of caveat of that. We actually didn't, it's purely flatted out. We take, uh, you know, a patch by patch, like eight by eight patch and eight by eight patch, uh, to, and then flatten it out. That's illustrated in the image. But, um, but for simplicity, it's like, for image, you just take this uh, input pixel value and you you make it 1D and you predict one by one. It's the same for wave. So when you read the or audio, audio is represented as wave. So you can read the wave input, just change that, that becomes a 1D byte sequence and you predict one by one. 
So basically, that's a that, that's a that, that's a bigger uh, difference. And for image image like uh, you just like uh, predict one by one and compare with uh, ground truth, then that give you per bit per uh, bit per bit per dimension. There, there are many way you call the metrics, but it's all the same. Basically, how well can you uh, accurately predict uh, one value out of 256? Uh, and then we uh, we actually achieve state of art for the smaller image, which is actually uh, the same state of our value matching state of our state of our value on image 64. And of course, we don't want to stop that. The reason we compare image 64 is people rarely do longer sequence of image. It's just because like earlier model didn't support that. So, but to illustrate the capability of our model, we did uh, image of 256 as well as image of 60, uh, 640 uh, pixel value. That's uh, equivalent to one million bytes when we flatten it out into one D. So that's the image experiment. And on the audio experiment, basically uh, we take some audiobook data where basically audiobook data as well as some speech data. Basically think about in the end it's just wave and you want to know how well your model can accurately predict or recover those wave information. So there's, there's actually a very, very interesting thing here is uh, normally the audio uh, is encoded not by the uh, eight bytes, not by the big bytes of eight, which uh, equivalent to 256 value. It's actually 16 bit depths. So that means like you read one value and that's not pick one out of 256, that's actually pick one out of 60. 5,000. That actually gives people earlier, in, in earlier research, that actually gave people very much headache because the softmax over one over 65,000 is very, very expensive. So what people have been done is either uh, do a cluster-based approach to map each of the value into one out of 256, or they do hierarchical decoding. So on the decoding, they do like tree-like decoding, decode into some bin and smaller bin value and then further decode. So that has been a big issue. But what we are doing here is like, we just read the file bytes. So we ignore like, okay, what's the, what, you know, the in particular encoding and decoding of audio file. We just ignore those. We take the file and read the bytes and model that. I think that's actually very interesting and that's the future direction we want to explore. Basically for certain file, forget about its image, its audio or its video. You just read the bytes. You just read the byte value and then you model that. I think that's that's gonna be very, very interesting. I wanna kind of cover results. And then I wonder if there's any, you know, things that you would flag in terms of like, you know, what at, at a high level, you know, are there trade-offs here? The results you kind of present in two ways, as I understand it. One is basically that you kind of compare a, I believe it's a compute, 
matched experiment where you say, okay, I have a certain compute budget. I'm going to train a transformer, you know, classic transformer. And also you do the perceiver architecture and then you've got the, you know, the new megabyte architecture, but same compute budget. I'll train them each as well as I can on this given compute budget. And then I'll compare how they do in the end. And, and that is done on a byte by byte basis, right? So we're using kind of the same uh, encoding in that experiment and finding that when you're dealing with bytes, like the megabyte architecture just blows away the others. But then the other question is, okay, well, people don't usually do transformers in that way for all the reasons that we've discussed. So then the other approach is let's take a data set, same data set. And here I was a little bit confused, but it seemed that you're taking the same data set, training a transformer, perceiver AR, and a megabyte on that same data set, you know, say it's a, a text data set. I wasn't quite clear how the compute budget uh, compared across those uh, different architectures, but the key punchline is the results are comparable. Yeah, so it's actually uh, uh, it's actually an experiment hard for us to do for the I mean the latter case. Let me first explain why compute match is so important because it's actually quite well quite quite known to everyone basically for a quite scalable and capable of model architecture, adding more data, as well as adding more compute hours. You know, with the right setup, it normally gets better as you train longer and, uh, yeah, train longer um, and adding parameters to it. So that's why we think compute match is always is very, very important. It's just like opportunity cost. If I take the uh, local transformer and I just add on top of the global transformer, that's that's for free, right? It's definitely like most of the cases going to get better, but what we want to Consider is opportunity cost. If you want to add a global model, you have to look, make your local model smaller because you only have such compute. Uh, so that's the same. So that's the same. That 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 that's a general idea. We want to do compute a match. Uh, so that's why we implement this perceiver AR in house. Of course, we run the experiment to validate. We get uh, comparable experiments from the original paper, but. In a compute experiment, we run the baseline, which is Perceiver AR, of course, and another baseline, which is Naive Transformer. Uh, we run the three model all ourselves. And the three model are seeing the exactly the same data. They are training for exactly the same, uh, same hours. So we think that's a fair comparison. And that's what really makes us happy to get the confidence why uh, megabyte is good. However, as you said, most people don't do this way. When they publish paper, they don't tell you exactly how many hours they train on which GPU, uh, what's the best size, etc., etc. So we also want to convince, also let us know, do are we comparable with other implementation? We want to compare to more models, but many models we don't know the detail. So in that case, uh, for the benchmark run, we try to run the model longer until the model converge. That means like the validation loss is not uh, going down again. And we take that value to compare 
with what the people has been reporting in their paper. But again, we don't know exactly what's happening in their paper. But that's idea. We want to at least reach a ballpark, or at least uh, we know we are not using more compute than them, but we still get comparable performance. So I think that's uh, in high level two sets of experiments we are running. So this is table three, right in the in the paper, and the so the bottom section, the bottom three lines are all the experience that you ran with the byte level encoding. And you're basically showing their megabyte dramatically outperforming the other architectures with the byte level encoding. And then comparing to the top section, it's that validation column where, and I guess also the test column, where you're sort of saying, okay, now, and this is where I'm a little bit unclear as to exactly like, maybe you're also saying like, it's not fully clear. They, it's not always known exactly what somebody else did, but is if I compare the megabyte, you know, row at the bottom to the, let's just take the, you know, the top one, the transformer Excel from the top, do we know the relative compute budgets of those? Or we just know like the data set it was trained on? Like what is the constant in that comparison? Yeah, the the constant in the comparison is only data set. Unfortunately, many of the work, we don't know how much the how much computer they used. But one thing is like uh, PG-19 is a small data set. So basically that means you run multiple epochs of it. But for other in-house experiment, for example, see table two, those data sets are much larger than PG-19. But unfortunately, uh, people didn't really report all those data sets. So yeah, we, we are definitely doing like a uh, confined optimization here. So again, the bottom line is if you use the byte level, or byte level encoding, byte level prediction, then the megabyte architect architecture is blowing the other side of the water. But if you're kind of comparing on, you know, let's say something like, opt you know, each, each architecture working in its optimal condition, then you can get kind of comparable performance and you know, then the punchline is, but you still get all these other advantages of the of the megabyte architecture that we've you know that we've discussed. Actually, uh, that's not a full story. I think for the first story is for bytes. We believe megabyte is one of is the, is the best. But what people are interested in too is like, see, if you have byte input, what's a, what's a, what's the optimal? We already know uh, megabyte. Uh, we are pretty sure. But another question is like, on byte prediction task, we're the best. But is a byte prediction task as a language model task work as well as when you have tokenizer for the language task? I think that's what we try to get the insight from table three. So we didn't really answer that in this paper, but we're working on that right now. It's like, see, you know, byte level has its advantage, but we want to know can we just replace the tokenizer as a whole in the future and get wide wide adoption so we don't need to worry about tokenizer like with all the troubles I just mentioned at the beginning of the of our our conversation so that's that, that's something we are currently working on so there's a conversion process there where you're basically saying we're going to rescore 
our byte level prediction output as if it were delivered in token form. And then we can kind of compare on a more apples to apples basis. Yes, yes, that, that, that's exactly what, uh, what happened here when you see table three and, and, and table two, like their value is like in totally different range, right? Because table two also have PG-19 results and the BPB is around one. But when you see table three, that's converted. That's converted to, to token way, like word level probability. And it's in the range of 42. So there is a conversion between them. They are actually, see table three, that's uh, word level probability of 42 actually is equivalent to 0.8 BPB. So that's, um, maybe that's a confusion. Uh, the reason is because the top session, the top other work, they don't report the BPB value. So there's no way we, uh, we can compare. So we have to convert our results to word level probability. Yes. The upside of this, hopefully, is pretty well established. You've got these, you know, the avoidance of all the tokenization. You've got the, you know, natural flexibility to handle all these different modalities. There's the compute efficiency. The performance is all there. What do you think happens as you scale this up? I mean, there's a couple of interesting little wrinkles in the in the paper, particularly around the strided inference, where there seems to be this there is some sort of performance penalty associated with the boundaries between the patches. And so you have an interesting strategy for overcoming that. But then I've also seen, you know, most of the commentary on this paper online has been like effusively, you know, positive and um, really hyping it up. But one of the more interesting things I saw, and I really don't have an intuition for this myself, but I wonder if you do, was somebody said, you know, this looks amazing. I do wonder if it will demonstrate the same sort of in-context, you know, few-shot learning uh, type behavior that the vanilla transformer does. Maybe it wouldn't because of the, you know, the sort of early localization of information, perhaps. So maybe just for starters, tell us about like what you kind of observed in the in the patch boundaries and how you overcame that so far, and then how that, you know, may develop and you know what you expect as you think about scaling this up much bigger yeah so basically again as you said see if we want to answer this question will people adopt this in a wide range i think the only way to test that is scale it up because uh, nowadays people don't really care about if you train a model that's less than one billion and you only train less than less than let's say 100 billion tokens People re don't really care about that because um, we already know there there is a region that model can be more powerful. So that's what we currently working on. See, can we train using similar compute of Llama <laughs> and get uh, matching performance uh, on Llama? And then we don't have we don't need the token either. That's what we currently work on. And we think that's ultimate test if that's gonna work well and being able to get adopted and, and, and being widely used. One thing about the boundary is, uh, so that's something really, really interesting. And we have a couple of way of thinking like how to solve it. So one thing we explore a little bit is this, uh, the convolutional layer. 
the, the convolutional layer actually improved the model slightly, but it didn't improve too much. Ultimately, our hope is that's going to be actually soft with scaling. When the model seeing enough data, the model should learn the environments across the boundary. So I think that's that's exactly the ultimate goal. And 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 we're very hopeful, like to see more data model can learn that. Uh, on the other side of in-context learning, I think in-context learning you, you shouldn't really to be be worried because it's all showing in the perplexity, right? Like ultimately, if the model can understand and predict the next word well, which is showing in the perplexity, then your in-context learning shouldn't be a problem. So I think ultimately, again, I think both questions should be answered when we have this large compute and large model sets experiment done. There's a lot of surprises in these, you know, systems, right? Like in some sense, it's all a giant surprise that transformers have scaled as well as they have and, you know, seem to be, uh, you know, even, even Jan uh, Lacoon has recently said some things about like, yeah, they probably do have some, you know, nascent world models. He wouldn't go as far as calling it a, you know, a full world model, whatever. Obviously, there's a huge debate around that. But it does seem like these things kind of keep surprising us on the upside in general. Do you have any sense for how the surprises with this architecture might be different from the surprises we've seen with kind of, you know, the, the vanilla transformer? Or is that just something that we have no way to guess except to go scale it and find out? I will say if it's a surprise that needs emergent behavior, like yeah, most of the time, you know, just let us let us get surprised. <laughs> but uh one thing we hope that it can better at is actually code and math. It's less talk about, but actually coding as well as math problem, uh that's something like uh you know, kind of like big issue with tokenizer. And as well as like sequence lens, like the coding, uh, when you need to, you always need longer sequence for you to be able to model, uh, like the, 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 um, a coding problem. Also, the way you tokenize is just, just really, really unnatural. See, we get on a par to the popularity of the, of a normal language model, Sinama. We are also like really looking forward to see how this skilled uh, megabyte work on math and coding problem. Yeah, that's one of the domain we we want to really watch closely on. Yeah, the math in particular definitely makes a lot of sense. Uh, some of the explorations of like what a typical language model has to deal with in order to figure out math at all is you know, it can be pretty crazy sometimes where it's like these long integers, you know, people are trying to get it to add together are actually being parsed into like two and three digit tokens. And it's like, oh my God, no wonder it can't do the math. You know, when it's looking at it like that, it's it's definitely coming at it from a, you know, serious uh, deficit for starters. The coding one, I have a little less of a intuition for just because it seems like tokenization there I would guess is usually less weird, but yeah, yeah. So, so, so one thing, one one interesting experiment is like again token, 
like at the very, very beginning, we talk about why people need the tokenization to compress, right? If you take your domain and you compress it really, uh, you, and then you run your PPE, you can get a different tokenizer and that may give you a different compression rate. So what we do is like in one of the earlier work of my colleague, the encoder, basically is uh, almost like a codex model uh, developed by Meta too. So that's like code specific specific language model. If you take the common BPE, which is like GPT-2 BPE tokenizer, compare with, let's say we train an in-house tokenizer, we can get 30% less of token. That's just tell you like a GPT-2 tokenizer on code is not efficient. It's like, you know, 20, 30% less efficient. So it's very, also very domain specific. You know, also think about in code, sometimes there is like multiple space or something. It's really hard to figure like how BP token handle that and how that's actually meaningful. Yeah, I think I think there are there are issues with current way how people do that. Yeah, this probably also seems like it connects to I mean, they haven't published a ton about this, but it's kind of you know, gradually come to public light that the latest OpenAI models have a lot of code early in their training. And presumably this is kind of related where there's like, with presumably more code-friendly tokenization, it has an easier time learning certain logical structures. And, you know, then that can kind of benefit all tasks in a way that is really hard to get, you know, to happen with just traditional natural language and traditional tokenizers. So yeah, that makes me actually start to think that maybe this is going to just be, this might just be strictly better, <laughs> which I'm sure is what you're hoping too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, I think uh, to many sense, even we are happy with the simplicity part. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Galactica work also from Meta. So it's, uh, it's particular trained on archive and science. There are actually a whole strategy how you tokenize it. So there's like, oh, it, like in this case, we use BPE. In that case, we do byte. In that case, we do digit splitting. In that case, we do this. So there are three or like, I, I believe like three or four rules combined together to just to do the tokenization. So that's actually the users won't really feel the problem because in the, like maybe like the only concern, as you said, is that you run the tokenizer and know how many tokens you are, and then that's gonna change your ex expense. But for developer, actually, it's quite quite tricky to pick all these rules, how to handle, how to handle correctly and effectively. And when you're decoding, you also have like different way of decoding it. It's it's actually a hassle. Yeah. So so we are hoping that's uh, gonna simplify everything. Yeah. Anything else in this work that you want to highlight that we haven't got to so far? We are very excited about the either, you know, scanning the app or say to uh, be able to directly in the future model the raw format of any, any, any file, any input, any modality. I think that's like a really uh, exciting direction for us. Yeah. So I'll be looking out for the next paper. I just looked the... Uh... This one was published May 19th, and it's uh, we're recording here about a month later. 
knowing the size of the uh, clusters that you guys are working with over there, you know, I, I feel like I can set my stopwatch uh, and it shouldn't be uh, too much longer before we get some of these questions answered. I think it'll certainly be very interesting to see how that uh, that comes out. Maybe just zooming out for a couple kind of big picture questions. Meta AI has really been on a sort of incredible role lately and has been the subject of quite a bit of speculation. You know, there's like the Google memo that says, you know, and I don't, I don't, uh, you know, necessarily endorse all the conclusions of that memo, quite the contrary. But the idea is that, you know, Meta is winning because it's got this big open source community. What's it like to be at Meta AI right now with kind of hit after hit? What is the vibe? What is the kind of big vision? It seems like it's probably very different from some of the other places, but I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear your reflections on what it's like to be a part of that. I have to tell from my personal angle. On the other hand, I'm also working on like in general, multimodal, multimodal language model. So I think, as, as I said, that's one of the inspiration why we did the megabyte. And in our team, we also believe the future belongs to multimodal or mixed model. We are not think about now we have ChatGPT, now we have a journey. Why can't we have a unified model that's being able to do everything? That's definitely one big trend we're working on, and, and it's really, really exciting. I cannot ask for more at this stage. You know, it's been striking to see, obviously, lately, so much focus has shifted toward AI safety, and different organizations have kind of come out at the leadership level and signed on to you know, the extinction risk statement. OpenAI, DeepMind, Anthropic have all, you know, leadership at those at those companies have signed on. Is there a is there like a active dialogue about this within the meta AI team? I imagine there has to be, but we haven't really heard, you know, as much about the kind of how do we develop all this technology without uh, you know, losing control of it uh, from Meta. Yeah, of course, of course. We have a uh, we form like couple of like responsible AI team. And we are always very, very careful about the data. We are always very, very careful about the bios coming of the model. We have very, very strict, like, um, you know, how we do open source, even though at least right now in, in my team, like, like, like the big org, the, um, Meta Research Lab, we, we still have open source as our open science as our major goal. But the process of doing open source is very, very strict. We have to parse all this files filter. We have to answer all these questions. So that's basically embedded to every project. Of course, like we do hear like every day, like everyone is complaining. Why it's so hard to, to, use this model, why it's so hard to open source, the, sorry, use this data or open source this, this model. But it's a world we have to live, live in right, right now. We have to do responsible AI. And again, on the other side, there's like particular team forming. So I think in Meta, we are very much uh, following this. But no matter how hard it is, uh, the researcher here are interested. It seems like the leadership is aligned with open science, we want to do open science. I think, you know, again, we believe that 
um, to be able to do responsible AI, we shouldn't let few, that's only represents my own opinion, which we don't necessarily need only a very few number of companies to do that. Uh, we should open source it and everybody help debug, help develop more safe model. So yeah, yeah, I think um, it's definitely hated. I will say everyone has different opinion, but a baseline is like every open source model, it has to have some like internal filter, like it cannot be biased. Do you think we're going to start to see a sorting of researchers across these orgs? Because it seems like the you've obviously published this paper, and you know, along with that comes some fun stuff. Folks at OpenAI, you know, they still still do publish some, but like obviously not nearly as much. Um, if they had invented the megabyte architecture, I doubt they would have published it at this point. So it almost seems like there may be be developing a kind of divergence of like. People that you know value the open source ethos and and want to share go to places like Meta and people that maybe have a more you know we want to build a, a world changing product or you know we feel like we have to keep this stuff secret because it ultimately is too dangerous to share. They go to these other labs. Labs. Do you see kind of a, a polarization uh, or a self sorting starting to take place? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think that, I mean, that's unavoidable when the AI industry is mature enough so that you can quick uh, prototyping or quick productionizing certain model or certain idea. I think it's also understandable for, for certain company to say they don't release their model. It's just unfortunate a little bit to the community. Um, for us, we... We are here, we choose Meta AI, one of the reasons we believe open science, and we are speaking to that. But I do say, I agree with you, I do see this polarization. Another thing is, it hasn't happened to Meta, but it may happen is when the product team and the research team is doing, like the work is more and more similar, the resources, uh, could be pulled into the product team easily, um, you know, because the optimal customer facing team, like optimal like customer experience team, we as a research, as a pure research team, we are doing research that's far ahead. So in such a competitive space, the probably like the product team has more priority. So one sad fact could be the resource shifted to towards that. To, towards a product team and we get less. And you, you mean by resources there, you mean just compute, like access to GPUs? 100%. Yeah, well, it seems like uh, so far so good on that uh, <laughs> So front. far so good. <laughs> um, I think one of the most sort of unfortunate and problematic dynamics developing in the world today is the US-China rivalry, which seems like it's constantly escalating and it seems like nobody can do anything about it. And, you know, that would be bad enough unto itself. But now it seems like it's kind of feeding back into the AI discourse. And almost every other conversation I have about big picture AI questions, you know, are we rushing into this? Like, is this, you know, do we have a good plan to keep ourselves safe as we build these more and more powerful systems? 
so often the conversation kind of ends in, well, but, you know, China will do it if we don't. And so, you know, there's just kind of this low, low trust, obviously, and kind of, you know, almost fatalism around like, what other choice do we have? So for one thing, I always love to just highlight any positive, you know, connection or collaboration that crosses the U.S.-China, you know, uh, divide. And you having grown up in China, going to university there, then coming to the United States, working here, uh, you know, in some sense, embody that. What is it like for you right now to be at kind of the center of both of these, you know, super hot topics? Like AI is obviously super hot. U.S. China is super hot. Like the, you know, center of that Venn diagram is like maybe the most focal thing in the world. And here you are, you know, publishing research right from the kind of center of all of that. What is that like? And, you know, do you have any feelings about that? It's actually, to me, it's not uh, between U.S. or China. It's like every country can have different policy about how to develop AI model. And that could dramatic uh, impact things. One or two days ago, Israel, as well as uh, Japan, had a laws in like AI model could train on any data. So that's not even in China, right? It's just like in Israel and Israel nowadays have so many startups. I can imagine a scenario is like now everybody, all the startups are going to be an Israel company so that they can train with any data. They, they can have more freedom to develop their AI model. Yeah. So again, I think this indeed is a big concern. Um, in the end, I the easier way is everybody of course, it's hard. Everybody on similar page. So they follow this uh, rule of develop safe AI. But I will say go beyond, definitely go beyond the US and China. It's like worldwide. Uh, every country could be, you know, the one who allowed to train the widest uh, AI things there. Uh, I just hope that, uh, you know, clearer heads can prevail. And it seems to me that, you know, any, again, any flicker of positive relations between US and China should be celebrated and, uh, you know, elevated and made more visible. And, you know, certainly, I've always been a, you know, a big believer that to the degree that the United States can attract people from around the world, and including from China, it's like a great thing to bring people to, you know, the, the same research environments and have this kind of cross-cultural collaboration. So I don't expect you to have all the answers on that by any means. You've got your hands full, you know, obviously just doing the research itself. But boy, I want to, uh, you know, I hope we can continue to, um, you know, to have this, the degree or hopefully even more of the sort of academic and intellectual collaboration that has existed and, you know, continues to exist, but seems like it's under some threat, you know, and I, I just really hope that that can be, um, built upon and, and not, uh, you know, not something we turn our backs on. Okay. I think, uh, personally, I haven't feel that threat or I, yeah, I think overall what I have feel is a quite friendly environment. I think this is great. Phenomenal conversation. I really learned a lot from it. I'm glad to hear that you have not, you know, felt any of that sort of thing personally. I don't know to what degree people are feeling it personally, but just, you look at kind of macro numbers you know, the number of grad students coming is down. The number of like Americans living in China is way down. And, you know, just in general, there's this kind of decoupling phenomenon 
that, um, especially as we head into this, you know, AI future, uh, I would like to see more coupling and not less. So that's, you know, just kind of my, my overall point of view, but I'm, I'm very actually heartened to hear that you have, um, you know, have not found this to be a, a practical issue in your daily life. So that's good news uh, as I see it. Well, we'll leave it there then for now. Again, phenomenal work on the megabyte architecture. I'm looking forward to the next paper and seeing uh, if you've just, you know, changed the, the AI game, you know, across the board, or if there are any limitations or surprises that uh, are unveiled, I'll certainly be keeping a close eye out and, and reading your next uh, publications uh, with all that in mind. For now, Lily Yu, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Thanks. Thanks uh, for this nice conversation. It's a pleasure. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount.